Good morning. It's good to see you all here. It's good to be able to be back. I was not well last week, and I want to thank Dave Muggridge for filling uh, in and doing double duty the Sunday night and bringing that into the Sunday morning, last, <clears throat> last Sunday morning, with uh, maybe 24 hours notice or something like that. And um, Bob Carner, who came and uh, was able to uh, serve communion. Thank you, Bob. I don't know if you're here. But Bob, thank you for doing that. <clears throat> this mo- and also, um, thank you to those of you who sent uh, sympathy cards. My dad passed away a couple of weeks ago. And um, uh, we were hoping to try to get by- back and see him. I think it was around Easter or after Easter, but things started not going well in terms of travel and all, so we didn't do that. But um, um, he had a long life, uh, 95 years, I think. And uh, we just appreciate um, your expressions of sympathy. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 13, what I would like to do is work through the first six verses this morning. I thought about trying to finish off the chapter, but there's too much in there because what's happening is the uh, Hebrews is coming to a close. And so there's a, a list of you might say, applications of how to live, applications of their faith, because of all the things that have been going on through the book of Hebrews. It has certain, uh, certain implications for the way that we should live, certain implications for the way that we understand who Jesus is, and therefore the way that we should live out our Christian lives. <clears throat> there are a number of other things as well that are happening in uh, in this book that are a little bit more difficult at times to, uh, to kind of measure and, and get a handle on, but some of those things you can, uh, you can begin to see kind of um, percolating up to the surface as you, as you uh, hear this last chapter as certain, um, uh, certain advice, if you'd like to call it that, is given to them in terms of how they ought to be living. And you can see how the situation there uh, amongst the Hebrews that uh, were being written to could give rise to some of these issues. So we're going to just work through the first six verses this morning. And then the plan is to finish it up next week. So if you'd like to keep your Bibles open and we're going to be working through um, verses one through six. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for the encouragement that the book of Hebrews has been over the last couple of months. We thank you for the perspective of Hebrews on the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can see in the book of Hebrews that people struggled with the worship of angels, and yet Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the only begotten Son. We see that people struggled with Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament law under Moses, and yet we find that uh, the Son is the Son over the household, not the servant, as Moses was. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is the Son. We thank you for being able to see that Jesus is our high priest, And his priesthood was superior 
to the priestly sacrifice, uh, sacrifices being offered through the Levitical priesthood at the temple. We thank you that our great high priest came here, that he offered his body without blemish, his life without blemish as the perfect sacrifice once and for all, that we might enter into heaven in him. We thank you that he, by his sacrifice, put an end to the sacrifices of animals and bulls and goats that actually could not cleanse our consciences. We thank you and praise you that he was made like us and is able to sympathize with our weakness as he learned obedience through suffering. We thank you and praise you that we have a Savior who is so close to us and yet was without sin so he can help us, so we can cry out to him with confidence when we are in, in need of help and mercy. Now, Father, we pray that you will help us to pick up here at this last, uh, in this last chapter. Help us to learn from some of the things that we're looking at this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so in the first uh, few verses, I'll just read a couple of, of them to familiarize us with them again before we get into them. The first couple of verses, um, the, the author says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. I have the later version of the NIV here. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing, uh, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So I'll just stop there. And just want to remind us of this, um, um, this imperative that is given to us to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, going back and just setting a little bit of the context, if you could imagine, one of the things that was happening amongst the Hebrews that this book is written to is that there were those of, of them who... Uh, who professed faith in Christ. They became Christians, um, but perhaps didn't put everything together in terms of what that meant. So there's still a real strong and powerful draw to uh, continue with the temple worship. In fact, if you didn't continue with temple worship and you identified with Christ, you were very likely, it, it could happen very easily, that you would be persecuted. And back in chapter 10, it talks about how some of them were imprisoned, some of them suffered, some of them had property taken from them, because that was one of the things that happened if you began to distinguish yourself as a follower of Christ as opposed to a follower of Old Testament Judaism, the Old Testament law. Jesus said that was going to happen. He reminded them that people were going to be thrown out of the synagogues um, if they followed him. So there was going to be difficulty. And so in that difficulty, uh, there are those um, that are um, questioning uh, other Jews who are questioning each other. Maybe even in families it happened that some of, some of the same people within a family might say, no, I'm, I'm going to follow Christ and I, that means I'm going to give up the time that I would spend with the feasts and the 
temple sacrifices, etc. And then others who would be maybe challenging him said, no, you don't need to give those things up. You need to continue as our forefathers have done. This is our heritage. Why are you not being loyal uh, to the old covenant? There would have been arguments and struggles between who is right and not only who is right, but who is more righteous because of, the, uh, of what we are doing. Are, are, are we more righteous because we're going to the temple and still observing the sacrifices? Or are you more righteous because you've given those up? And what does that mean? There would have been challenges in terms of um, um, keeping the whole law. If we're giving up the, the Old Testament sacrifices, well, what other parts of the law are you going to give up? Are you going to stop observing? We'll get to that in a little bit as we go further along. Uh, are you being disloyal to your heritage? Um, it would have been a real challenge to keep on loving one another. That's what they were called to do. That's how this section starts out. Keep on loving one another. And we know that we are called to love one another. Peter talks about um, loving one another deeply from the heart. So we know that our love can go so far for one another, and then sometimes it stops and it won't go further. But it, here it's talking about stretching it out. Keep on loving one another, even when there are circumstances that are arising that you're in the midst of that are making it a real challenge for you to love one another. And that's what's happening here. So this section, this section that we're looking at, um, is a section that just encourages them in very practical ways to love one another. And the, the, the uh, uh, let's see, I guess it's verse, yeah, it's verse two. <clears throat> Look at verse two. Our imperative um, is to love one another. And there are, are three different groups of people here that are, uh, that are identified as difficult to love. He says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. This is a working out of love. If they're going to keep on loving one another, then don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. And the encouragement there is, uh, one of the encouragements is, uh, for, those, for they knew their history, remember what happened to Abraham. He showed hospitality. Lot showed hospitality to, to angels. They didn't know they were angels, but they showed hospitality to these people. So he reminds them that um, for some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. He tells them to continue to remember those in prison. Do you remember when um, Lyle Shelton was the head of the ACL and there was a car bomb set off in Sydney outside the headquarters about, how many years ago was that now? There you go, thank you. Did any of you ever begin to think, well, maybe Lyle Shelton's just not what he ought to be? Did that ever enter any of your minds? That you might have, maybe some of you don't even know who he was, but he's a Christian guy, right? And he's a leader of the ACL. And a car bomb goes off. But then you begin to think, because the media helps as well, the, then you begin to think, well, maybe he was doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe it was really they were asking for it. Maybe they deserved it. Maybe there was something we don't know about the part of the story. So in a sense, you begin to even be a little suspect of Lyle Shelton because somebody bombed his car or bombed a car associated with them. 
That's what happens when these things happen. That's what happens when Christians begin to get persecuted. Uh, and that's what's happening here in Hebrews. When, um, uh, when difficulties arise, um, we can withdraw from each other. We can begin to put a distance there because we're not sure. Um, and I just want to want to remind us here that um, love, and that's what this uh, verse one is saying that we are to continue to love one another. That love is an imperative for Christians. Love comes from God to us in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Another passage out of Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we're sinners, Christ dies, died for us. That's a demonstration of the love of God. That's the kind of love that we should know from God and then in turn love others with. <clears throat> Reading out of 1 John Chapter 4, verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but, we, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Is it any wonder that this section starts out with keep on loving one another? Because if that is a temptation not to, then that is a temptation actually to wander away from the Christian faith. It's a temptation to walk in a direction that is a, not a good direction. It's a bad direction. If we are not going to, uh, as he says, keep on loving, he says to them. Keep on loving one another. <clears throat> the next couple of verses talk about people who are hard to love. As I mentioned, with, with Christians who start to undergo uh, uh, persecution. <clears throat> We just prayed for people who are far away. We prayed for people who are suffering in other lands. We need to continue to pray for them. In this uh, letter, uh, these people are called to pray for those in prison, pray for those who are mistreated, and pray for strangers, showing hospitality, not praise, excuse me, love. Show hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to those in prison. Remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, because some of them probably were. Some of them at one time were in prison, and, and, and now others are, and they might be out. Um, remember them. And those who, were, who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering, so instead of creating the distance that we do with other people who are suffering and other people who might be in prison... Um, I was just thinking, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with, if you're following the Austrian Christian lobby at all, but I hope that some of you have been um, watching some of the YouTubes of Martin Isles because he's uh, really uh, right on the nose on a lot of things. Um, it, with, uh, here within Australian Christianity and politics and all those things. 
Um, but there's someone who's got a, who's got a uh, who's got a mark on his back, and um, so what happens if Martin Isles uh, is comes up on trumped up charges? Uh, he's already been threatened. His life has been threatened. So what happens if if all of a sudden he makes it in the paper and we find out oh he was doing such and such, uh, and and you think oh no wonder no wonder he's been arrested. Uh, here I thought he was a, a good Christian. And now something's happened. So, you know, one of the first things we'll do is kind of believe all the stuff that's going to be trumped up about him. <clears throat> it reminds me of a, a guy I met in Moscow who was a Christian. And he'd spent 10 years in prison because of, he made an evangelistic movie. He was my age. And he'd already been prisoned for 10 years. And I met him after he'd been out of prison. So he was running for a, a seat in the Moscow city council. And so what, what the, uh, the communists did, what the Moscow people in power did, is they trumped up all these charges against him and talked about how he had train loads of, of goods coming from the West to, uh, to line his pockets so that he would actually be a, a puppet for the Western governments. And the guy is just a simple Christian guy who was running for city government. And I, I can't even remember if he won or lost. I suspect he probably lost. And they'd taken over his office, and they'd gotten all his addresses. They'd gotten his mailing list. They mailed everything out, and they just told everybody, don't believe a word this guy says. And he had already suffered 10 years in prison. People were ready to listen to the garbage that they were uh, circulating about him. When people get into trouble, even brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the ways that we are tempted to respond is to judge them and to say, well, somebody's right, and they can't be, it can't be all wrong. There's got to be something wrong with this guy, whatever it is. And um, so he is, the, the, the author here is... Um, telling them, don't lose sight of what we are to do. Stretch yourself out in terms of loving these people. Showing hospitality to strangers. Lots of Christians back then um, traveled around, visited churches, um, might stay in a church for a while, not a church building like this, but amongst a Christian community, do some preaching and teaching. Uh, eventually, it was also the case that Christians were taken advantage of and false teachers could come in and, and they could uh, get wealthy off of, um, uh, off of the Christians. And so early on, there's even instructions given to the churches about how to avoid those kinds of things, how to avoid these people. You know, they'll come in, show hospitality to them, but don't let them stay too long and don't let them get your money from you. Um, and... Um, uh, but still show hospitality. He says, remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are, who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering because as I said earlier, some of them had suffered and they were not to forget that there were still those who were suffering. So loving one another was critical. And just to remind us, Jesus was a stranger. He was a stranger to his own people. John 1.10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus was mistreated. John the Baptist was mistreated. 
The apostles were mistreated. All of these eventually lost their lives. And this is, uh, this is kind of a, a, a pattern for Christianity. It doesn't mean that it's always been like that. It's not like that currently here in this country. But I think it needs to, we need to be reminded that <clears throat> we shouldn't be thinking of Christianity um, as something that guarantees for us a life without difficulty, without suffering, and without hardship. If we think that's what Christianity is, then we've missed something basic. There is no promise that we have that everything here is just going to work out just the way we want so that our life is a life of affluence and personal peace and prosperity and health and wealth and that we will just live all the days of our lives in that way. That's not the promise of the Christian faith. It may be true that there are good blessings that God gives us and that a country like Australia that's in, influenced by the gospel where there are, there are, there's personal freedoms and uh, freedom of uh, religion and freedom of speech and, and things that add to a good life that we know that other people in other nations don't know. But that's not a guarantee of the gospel. Uh, in fact, as we look, the founders of the Christian faith were people who suffered under a very oppressive regime. Would we have been ashamed to associate with Jesus at his lowest uh, when he was open to public ridicule and shame? That was the kind of problem that there was for the Hebrews that this letter is written to. And we need to make sure that we as Christians are doing what we can um, to encourage one another in the faith and to not begin to faint back when we see Christians who are, um, who are harder to love. Uh, because th this, this requires us. Uh, he's requiring them to rub shoulders with people. He's requiring them. He's saying, if you're going to love the way that you should love, if you're going to keep on loving one another, then you will need to be hospitable to strangers, which, me which means you'll have to meet strangers. And you'll have to remember those who are in prison with empathy and sympathy. And so... Um, just that first couple of verses is just a reminder that um, they're not to give up on loving one another, but they are to stretch out that love and they are to learn and to know the love of God in Christ and they are then as well to express that love to other people, even people who it might be difficult uh, to, to love. The next section I want to look at is the section on um, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. <clears throat> Just a little bit of a background here. Adultery and sexual immorality was commonplace in the first century Roman Empire. The Jews had been raised, though, with the Ten Commandments. And they had, commandments, they had a commandment that talked about not committing adultery. They had a commandment was a foundation for the family and the marriage relationship. And as I mentioned earlier, 
There would have been those, there would have been those believers who were now challenged by the fact that, that this, uh, particularly through the book of Hebrews, that now we're, we're being told that we don't need to, uh, to keep the Old Testament law anymore. And I'm not sure that the first century uh, Jew, um, who was maybe trying to be faithful to the Old Covenant, would have been quite as nuanced as we are today in regards to the Old Testament law. They may have looked at it all of a piece as one piece. Yes, all the distinctive laws, but if you're telling me that I don't uh, need to sacrifice bulls and goats anymore, are you also telling me that the other parts of the law, the other parts of the law are also things that I don't need to keep? So this could have been a bit of a challenge especially within the context of the, of the Roman Empire. Maybe marriage is not that important. Well, the Bible continues to uphold marriage. And, um, and the question that is raised all the way back in Romans 6 that Paul anticipates when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live uh, in it any longer? So there is, a, there is a struggle here, again, of, of refining what this means in terms of, of the, the Old Testament law. You're telling us that we don't need to keep this. You're actually telling us that this is, that this is abrogated, it's fulfilled, and it's wrong for us to continue the Old Testament Levitical uh, sacrifices if, as if in some way they applied to us. And that's what Hebrews does. I just want to take a little bit of a, of, of a, I guess it's a rabbit trail here, just a little bit, just to tease out a little bit of what this is talking about, <clears throat> of, what, of what the church has done. Let me put it that way. What the church has done in regards to the Old Testament, and particularly what the Protestant church has done in regards to Old Testament law. So, and our church follows in that tradition. So over time, we've recognized that there are basically three uses of Old Testament law. One uh, here is the moral law. You shall not commit adultery. And um, the moral law is considered to be in, in place, in force. It's the law that says you shall not make any idols so that on the basis of that, let's just say the Ten Commandments, that this summed up, sums up the moral law, that um, this moral law, the Ten Commandments, helps us to understand our need for salvation. It shows up, uh, it shows us up uh, as sinners. And as sinners, then, we are to look to Christ. So the Old Testament law is the one that, the, the, the moral law, let me put it that way, the moral law is the one that really shows our weakness, that we should have no other gods uh, before God. We shouldn't make any idols that we shouldn't covet that last of the Ten Commandments that is so, it, it just kind of takes care of, of everything because our sin comes from our hearts. Our hearts are full of covetousness and envy and all those things, all this greed and, and things. So we are to love God and to love him first. And um, so then what happens after we become Christians and we realize that Jesus has kept the law for us. We, we're unable to keep it perfectly, but he has. 
and that our salvation is in Christ. It's not because we keep the law. Our salvation is in Christ who kept the law when we couldn't. But now we find out as well that the law has been written on our hearts. And you can bring in the work of the Holy Spirit there. The, the law is written on our hearts. It's not just this external thing we're trying to maintain. And yet even though the law is written in our hearts, we still don't keep it perfectly. There, there will not be any time in this life where we are saved by keeping the law. We are saved by Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. He has kept the law for us. But as we are made holy, as we continue to grow in grace, as we grow in Christ, the Holy Spirit enables us more and more to want the, the good things of the law, to desire the law, and to keep it. Uh, that's why Paul can say to them, um, here's what you need to do in your marriage. Keep the marriage bed pure. Don't commit adultery. Because that is part of the moral law that God has given us. And it's part of the way that we grow as Christians. To, to not do so is referred to as antinomianism. And there are Christians who are antinomian. I don't know if, we've, if you've run into many of them, but they would be basically Christians who say, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm saved by grace, I can do whatever I want to do. No more law applies to me. So I'll live the way I want to live. <clears throat> if I want to uh, cut corners so I can make more money, I'll cut corners to make more money. In other words, I'll steal, or whatever it might be. But no, that's not what we find in the New Testament. The New Testament is more nuanced. It does, it does talk about the, the moral law and how that kind of continues. It continues to be applicable to us. We're not saved by it. Um, the other uh, use of the law, which is what we're really dealing with mainly in Hebrews, is the, the second use of the law, which is ceremonial. Uh, the ceremonial law. It has been fulfilled and it has been abrogated. No more need for us to sacrifice bulls, goats, doves. We don't do that because that Old Testament law, the ceremonial law, is finished. It's fulfilled in Christ. One sacrifice now, once and for all. And you go, you go back and survey through Hebrews if you want to pick all that up again. Um, but that's the one that is probably the, the big struggle here in, for the Hebrews that are being written to. Yeah, you're telling me that we, we shouldn't go to the temple anymore and go to the sacrifices. And that's exactly what Hebrews is telling them. Then a third use of the law, one which we don't really see and it's not really referred to as such, and yet it does have a place in our society, is what is called the judicial or civil use of the law. And that is simply, we are not obligated to, and I'll give you an example here, it's a common example, um, maybe trite, but you can, you can tease this out with other laws in the, uh, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> There's a law in Deuteronomy 22, uh, verse 8, that says that um, you need to build a parapet around your roof. So they had flat roofs. So um, they build a parapet around it so people don't fall off the roof. Uh, what do we do? We build fences around swimming pools. Same thing. We protect human life. That's what that law was for. 
So there is an application, and um, the way that the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about it is that the uh, civil or judicial laws, they're also not something that we have to follow. We don't have to go build a, a fence around our roof. Our roofs are different. We don't spend time on them, at least not most of us. And, um, uh, and yet, what it is is there is an equity there. There is, there is a, a, a fairness there. There is an application of the protection of human life so that they do, those things do find their way into our laws. They find our way into our building codes, where some, some countries, their building codes are terrible because they're not motivated by the protection of human life the way we are in our country. So human life is important. And so this third use of the law, there are times when, when we reflect those, and it's fine to reflect those Old Testament principles of the protection of human life. And there's other ones you could look at too. Um, <clears throat> uh, but those, uh, going back to the original one, those, th th that's the, the moral law is that um, um, the author is telling them, these are the things that you need to do. And I'm not sure that there's any particular unique challenge that the uh, the, the Hebrews in this book were facing regarding uh, adultery and marriage other than the possibility that because the ceremonial laws were being uh, dismissed that perhaps they were thinking, well, maybe these other laws are being dismissed as well and we need to reflect a lifestyle more like we see around us in the Roman Empire. Uh, that's a little speculation on my part. But there are obvious, obviously reasons that he is saying to them, keep the marriage bed pure. Keep the marriage. Hang on to your marriages. Make them of, of uh, significant importance in your lives. And then lastly, the section here, verses 5 through 6, simply talks about money. You're going to trust in money or you're going to trust in God. Where's your trust going to be? Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals or what can man do to me? Our daily lives, whether you're a student, an apprentice, whether you're working, whether you're retiring, whether you're shopping or uh, recreating or socializing or traveling, your family life, all of these things that you do in your daily living should be free from the love of money. It doesn't mean that it should be free from the use of money. It's not saying that. Money itself is not wicked. It's our hearts that bring that to it. And if we love money, and if we, uh, if we, if we love money, uh, that will crowd out the love of God. And um, there are at least two loves that should crowd out the love of money. And that is the love that we have. Well, let me put it three. Let me add another one. God's love for us and how we understand that. In turn, our love for God 
Remember, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, what's what's the most important commandment? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So there's, I'm adding one. Understanding God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for others, our neighbors, that should displace the love of money. And if we are waning or weakening in terms of our understanding of God's love for us or our love for God or our love for our neighbor, then that will be crowded out by the love of money. So we have to always be on guard. He says to them, um, Keep your lives free from the love of money. That means there's probably in our lifetime, in a normal lifetime, there are probably going to be multiple times when your life is going to be offered the opportunity to love money. And we're told to keep our lives free from that. And that's an ongoing thing. All through our lives, when we're challenged with that dependence on money again and what it can get us, the security that it can get us, the pleasures that it can get us, the comforts that it can get us, we are to keep our lives free from loving it and to be content with what God has given us. And the, the, the uh, contrast here is that uh, because God has said, in other words, you don't have to love money because I say, I'm not going to leave you, I'm not going to fors- forsake you, So you don't need to love money because there's a greater good, there's a greater God than money. Um, Money is, uh, God promises promises us his presence, he promises us his redemption, he gives us his love, he protects us, he cares for us, and um, it's far greater than any illusion that money can, uh, can give. And it is, uh, it's a sad thing, and it is a waste of your life if you have loved an illusion all your life. If you spend your lives loving money, and you get towards the end of your life and you realize it didn't do what I thought it was going to do, and that's exactly what will happen. It's not going to provide for you what you think it's going to provide. It's not going to provide the security. Only God can give the redemption. Only God can give you eternal life. Money can't do it. So, in conclusion, just remembering that the Hebrews were in a challenging time. Uh, We've been in challenging times the last uh, three or four months. Not as challenging as they could be, but challenging. It's been a time of challenge for them, a time of transition, a time of pressure, and he's telling them to just Dig into the basic things of the Christian faith. Keep loving one another. Don't love money. Love God. Very simple things. Do the things that God wants you to do in your relationships with one another. Um, we'll find out next week. It, 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 times of difficulty like they were in are also times when people are attracted to go, do, go off and do strange and wonderful things thinking that somehow they're going to be able to, those strange and wonderful things will be able to relieve them from the pressures that they are under. No, it doesn't work. A couple verses on, it'll 
talk about um, don't get don't go off into these various teachings because they they always seem to hold some promise for us but there's nothing there not if they're taking you away from the gospel not if they're taking you away from God so in conclusion love God well as I said before know God's love know his love for you that's where it all starts know his love for you in Christ love God love one another and as Verse 1 says, keep loving one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the love that you have for us that is demonstrated in Christ. We thank you for the way that you've been faithful to us through the difficulties these last, last several months. We pray that whatever the pressures that we may feel, that have come to us during these last several months, that you will help us to remain faithful to you, uh, to uh, not get over complex and overcomplicated in our faith, but simply to look at those things that you've set before us very clear and to trust in you, to love you, and to keep loving one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.